NapaBroadcasting.com. Controversy, fun, and conversation. All the things that radio used to be. Welcome back to NapaBroadcasting.com. We're going to spend some time talking to a guest that has been with us before. He is Bill Chadwick. He's a veteran. He's a former member of the Napa Planning Commission, an activist in the area of veterans affairs as part of the California Veterans Support Foundation. He's also part of the Naval Postgraduate School. He's just back from a trip to Afghanistan, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to the studio. Bill, thanks so much for coming in. Sure thing, Jeff. Happy to be here. Good to have you here. First of all, what brought you to Afghanistan? What was the reason for this trip? This has been an ongoing uh, project. Uh, The Naval Postgraduate School has sent me over to help them get uh, their procurement and contracting function on behalf of the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Interior and Ministry of Finance. Uh, together so that they could, in fact, take over responsibilities. As you may recall, just this past weekend, uh, the four-star general there, John Campbell, announced the end of the our, end, right? Yeah, the end of the NATO mission. And so, to to make that truly complete, we need to turn over responsibility for everything. Not only fighting the Taliban, but also being able to do uh, the functions that every that every government has to do for themselves. So basically, infrastructure. And- Finance. Mm-hmm. I mean, all all the parts of the government infrastructure. Yeah, to the to the tune of about thirty four million dollars a day in ser- goods and services for for the primary mission of uh, running the government. I, my focus was not so much on on the interior uh, of the government, but more on the Ministry of of Defense capability to carry the fight to the to the Taliban. And what is your sense of how prepared they are to do that? Well, I, I got to tell you, I was I was uh, I was very impressed with what they've done since my last visit there. In the last eighteen months, they've created an academy. They're teaching procurement and contracting law. They're t- they're teaching the function all the way from a purchasing agent all the way up to uh, head of agency and and the ability to award contracts. Uh, they got about an eighty percent solution. I think I think they're I think they're able to take it over for themselves. How much of that is as a result of the new government that has come into power there? Well, everyone I spoke to, both on the Afghan side and the U.S. side, was very very supportive of, of President Ghani. Uh, of course, he's serving in a coalition government with uh, Abdullah Abdullah, more of, who, who is more of a traditionalist. Ghani is uh, is very well respected by by the Western uh, support there. In, in Kabul. I mean, think about the country. You're talking about a country about the size of Texas, 30 million people, and 7 million of those live in the capital, right in Kabul. When were you there last? Uh, I was there in 2013. Mm-hmm. And, and what's changed in terms of attitude even in the past year? Well, the, the people uh, that I spoke with, and, and most of the folks, again, in the three ministries that I worked with, interior, finance, and defense, were um, anxiously uh, optimistic looking forward to the future. Um, they know that they've got a big uh, challenge ahead. I mean, I got there on the 5th of December. That was the day that the Senate Intelligence Committee mm-hmm. released their report on torture. And we unfortunately had five bombings that day. Several Americans were killed in, in the Capitol the day I got there. What did you hear in terms of reaction to that? What, did pe- what were people saying? Well, um, that that combined with the other things that happened while I was there. I mean, I didn't come back until the 19th of December, so we had the we had the killing in Pakistan where mm-hmm. the Taliban in fact went in, went into a school and killed right. school children. Uh, alarm, dismay, lots of government reaction. President Ghani went on uh, national television denouncing the Taliban for that. Um, 
generally speaking, the Afghan people are very, very supportive of what's ha- of what's gone on so far for the last 13 years. The support they they uh, one of the colonels that I spent time with uh, referred me to their flag and spoke about the years of domination, the black portion of their flag, the blood uh, representing the uh, the red representing the blood of the people of Afghan, and then the green anticipating the future and and things turning around. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how active, how strong the Taliban is right now. The Taliban are very strong, Jeff. There are sections, there are the 21 provinces in the country. Uh, I, I estimate, uh, based on what I heard over there, probably seven of those, a third of the country, is controlled by the Taliban. There are areas where the government does not go. Um, the the end strength of the of the Afghan government uh, of of the army is about 190,000. Right now, it's manned at about 160,000, and they lost 5,000 killed just this past year. So they're taking heavy casualties. Uh, it's a significant investment. And how large is is the Taliban now? Do we know? Do we have any idea exactly um, how big it is at this point? I you know I've heard different estimates. Uh, one intelligence officer told me he estimated about 25,000. Uh, I heard from a couple of Afghans. They thought it was more like fifty or sixty thousand. It's hard. To, it's hard to put a figure on it. And has it morphed at all over the years? Is the Taliban now the same as it was five or six years ago? In addition to, to growing larger, is is there a different focus, a different emphasis, different leadership? Obviously. Well, different leadership for sure. But I think also the Taliban are becoming a lot more uh, media savvy. Uh, they're looking at other groups, particularly ISIS, ISIL. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the remnants of al-Qaeda using uh, the media to their advantage. What is the relationship, as, as it seems over there, between ISIL and, and Taliban? Uh, no, no coordination that I'm aware of. Um, uh, certainly the Taliban, are, they have used terror to, to, good, to, to good purpose for themselves, both what they've done to the Afghan people as well as to uh, Western forces. Uh, I, I don't see any connection. I don't see any coordination, and I don't think they're supporting one another. I was on a base in downtown uh, Kabul, mm-hmm. very close to the presidential palace, about 10,000 troops from 17 countries. Uh, that's the end of the NATO mission. Those troops are starting to pull out. In fact, the day I left, the Macedonia uh, contingent left the same time I did. How much is still there or will be there after the troops pull out in terms of American or NATO advisors and support personnel? Well, the number probably will will not go down below 3,000 for the next couple years. Uh, I I envision advisors in a role of some description, probably technical types, people like me who uh, assist them in a technical field in program management and procurement, contracting, those sorts of things. Uh, I think we'll have a contingent there for, for the next few years. It, it will hover right around between three and 5,000. And how does all this relate to the current activity and the current role and what we see going on in Pakistan right now? Well, uh, you know, you, when you look at a map of the, of the two countries, uh, there are a lot of dotted lines. I mm-hmm. mean, the, in, in the tribal regions, they don't they don't see a border between Pakistan right. and Afghanistan. It's it's very porous movement back and forth, and and the Pakistan government, uh, I think they're becoming more prone to to go after um, the Taliban in the in the tribal regions. But but still, there's a lot of protection from ISIS. The ISI, the the Pakistan Intelligence mm-hmm. Service, 
is still um, somewhat somewhat uh, leaning towards Taliban. Part of the problem seems, at least looking at it from here, is that sometimes it's unclear who's on what side, or you know, it's not always clear even there. I well, why say. should it be any different there than any other region in the in the world? In the world, world right. I go to a lot of different places. I. I'm headed off in January to the Congo, to the Democratic Republic of Congo, a country the size of the eastern United States, about 15 million people. Uh, same thing there. I mean, they don't know who's on what side in the eastern part of that country. Uh, and that's the way it is in a lot of, a lot of parts of the world. How should we deal with that? In other words, how do you, that's the way it is. I mean, you're right. That's the way it is in large portions of the world. It goes against the way the West wants to understand things sometimes. Well, you know, in the Western world, we like to look up at the scoreboard and see what the score exactly. is. We, we like to break things down into quarters. We want a halftime entertainment. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's not the way the rest of the world is. We, we certainly can't apply our institutions. Um, the budget in Afghanistan is allocated on a yearly basis. Whether they spend it or not is another matter. If it's not spent, we call that the obligation rate. If they spend 80%, if they spend 60%, uh, you know, the NATO standard was that they, in fact, spend everything that they were allocated for the year. And that's just, we don't even, we don't even demand that here in the United States. Why should we demand it of Afghanistan? They spend 100% of their allocated uh, budget. But, you know, we, we put unreasonable expectations on the people that we support many times around the world. And what's the consequence of that? I mean, how does it really work against what our interests should be, the well, fact that we, we don't understand? That's a good question. I think, I think the consequence is that, unfortunately, uh, our allies, the people that we are supporting, will walk away from us. They will see it as unmanageable and, you know, unobtainium, to borrow a phrase from, from, uh, from a movie. Uh, that you just can't get there. So they'll get discouraged and they'll head off in a different direction. They'll go back to the old way they did things. I'm, I'm just finishing a book, Retreat from Kabul, which is the story of the 1841 expedition by the British Army. They killed uh, the tribal warlords in Afghanistan, killed 10,000 Brits. And, you know, if there's any lesson to be learned from that is be very careful going into that region of the world. You may not come back out. Uh, I just think, I think we have too high expectations when we go somewhere and we put unreasonable expectations on, on the people that we're supporting. What should our expectations be at this point in terms of what happens in Afghanistan for the next couple of years? Well, I, I think that the American people should be, uh, should not be surprised if after we withdraw that we have to go back in, just like we've done in Iraq. We need to get out of Afghanistan as soon as possible. We need to make sure that all of our troops are, are recovered safe and sound. You know, I, I hate to say this, but unfortunately what I've seen a lot happen in the last 15 years is we've used surrogate armies, we've used hired security forces uh, who are very well compensated for, 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 uh, for their services, and maybe that's the way to do this. Maybe we turn this into a... Um, to a fee for service for security and for technical services. Uh, I saw a lot of people on this compound I spent two weeks on uh, who were former military, who were now working for defense contractors, doing the same work they did on active duty, only now they're getting paid a lot more for it and they're wearing civilian clothes. Should that bother us in any way, or should we just understand that, that outsourcing and that's the way of the world today? I think outsourcing is the way of the world, Jeff. I think it's a, I think it's a way for us to compensate for um, for the casualties that our that our U.S. military take, 
and it's a way for us to justify that we're still supporting our allies around the world, but we're not doing it with um, we're not doing it with our uh, what do we call it our treasure and blood. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that bothers people so much? The fact that we would outsource or hire what people would refer to as mercenaries, or I mean, you know all the phrases. Well, I know all the phrases, and I and quite frankly, a lot of it's ju- a lot of it's hype on the part of our media as well as our elected officials. Our elected officials talk about sending our young people off to war. Well. Uh, actually, in the last 15 years, a lot more of the people that we sent were reservists. They were older. They had had their time on active duty, and then they chose to stay in the reserves. Um, you know, we don't have a draft, so no one's going that's not a volunteer, and no one goes that doesn't know that they're signing up for the military. I mean, let's let, let's call it what it really is. It's a way to make a living. It's an economic decision that a lot of young people make. Uh, I certainly made it. I wanted to be outdoors when I was 18 years old. That's one of the reasons I applied for the academy and went in the infantry and then special forces. I wanted to be outdoors. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be leading men. And, uh, you know, we we uh, we oftentimes turn it around and make it something it isn't. Uh, outsourcing our military capability is, is an economic decision as well as it supports our uh, you know, our compassion for not sending young people to foreign lands. What impact does that have then on those that come back, that, that if we do outsource it and there are casualties and there are those that come back, what obligations, if any, should we have? I mean, certainly we have this debate now with respect to veterans' issues. I mean, you and I have talked about that, and it's an ongoing debate and an ongoing discussion. If we outsource it, what, if any, obligation should we think about? Well, that you know, I've thought about this a lot, Jeff. I mean, now you're getting close really more to, to what I'm passionate about, and that's taking care of veterans. And that's taking care of people who have served in any capacity. Um, quite a few of my compatriots from special forces have left the service, gone to work for other government agencies uh, as contractors. And I tell them every time they do this, I say, keep in mind, if you are injured, hurt, or killed, uh, the agency you're working for as a contractor is going to get your body back as far as Hamburg, Germany. Basically, you're guaranteed a ride back on an airplane, either in a box or on a stretcher. And that's it. you got to take care of yourself from there on. I think we really need to review our rules and directives uh, that apply to government service. Uh, Contractors, the, the government has contracted a lot of service out uh, to compensate for, for shortages in manpower. And I think we've got to change the rules. I think we need to look at, at what we do for people after they leave uh, active service. I think we need, to, we need to adjust and change the Veterans Administration rules. Uh, right now, the military, you know, for up until about five years ago, the VA didn't even know how many suicides they had. They didn't know how many people had been injured uh, while working for another government agency, even though they might have VA veterans uh, status. A lot of those things have changed now. They've been forced by public outcry mm-hmm. to be aware of and to track people after they leave active service. Um, Australia, New Zealand, other countries look at service uh, to, our, to their nations in a different light and they compensate them accordingly. It's time to relook all those rules. Talk a little bit about that, because that's not talked about a lot. How did these other countries do it? What did they do that's different? In, in other cases, uh, regardless of the length of term of service, you're compensated with a pension. Um, you know, some of my 
Some of my conservative friends refer to it as a socialist system. Uh, I see it as being compensated rightly for what you've done. I served 22 years on active duty. I have a pension for the rest of my life. It doesn't prevent me from working. Um, I, I am considered a disabled veteran. I receive some compensation for that. But I still, I still uh, serve. I still work. I'm still eligible for both civilian as well as government service. The whole compensation uh, for veterans and the way we look at government service needs to morph. It needs to adjust and change. I think we're going to see a lot more people getting out of the service short of 20 years, short of a full retirement. But there's a way to compensate them for that. There's a way to give them uh, ad tax advantage as well as advantage in applying for certain jobs. And if we were to outsource, though, does that eliminate that obligation on the part of the government? It, uh, it could or it could not, depending on what the job, on what you're being outsourced to do. If you're going over to run a dining facility uh, in a, in a, in a um, you know, in a calm area, not right. necessarily a combat zone, maybe you get compensated as, in some portion for your uh, time in service. Let's say you, you serve 10 years on active duty, then you do five years as a government employee. Uh, maybe, that, maybe that all accrues towards uh, retirement. I think it's just time to relook. I mean, CalPERS is, taking, is relooking their system. Right. Our, our pension systems in America are broken. We can't afford them. They need to be adjusted. Are we willing, do you think, to have this conversation? It's always like one of the third rails of, of political discussion. When you get into these kinds of issues, people are always afraid to talk about them. Well, Jeff, you and I have had this conversation yeah. before. I think, I, I think that the hard conversations always get kicked down the road. Right. No one's willing to talk about this. Uh, we continue to focus on the things that are right in front of us. We focus on veterans' issues on Memorial Day and on 11-11 you know, on Veterans Day. The rest of the year, we don't really talk about it. It's time to have the conversation now. Coming back to Afghanistan, a little bit about the country and, and what you see taking place the way the country is beginning to change. Well, corruption still is an issue. The country is certainly tired of fighting. Uh, I saw a lot of examples in that country of, of people taking care of one another, in fact, supporting each other in the, neighbor, in the neighborhoods we would row through. And again, I, I'm, I'm riding in an armored vehicle with, with an armored uh, escort in front and behind. Everyone in the vehicle except me is armed. Uh, I'm wearing body armor and, and, a, and a helmet. Um, so I'm you know, I'm a little bit apart from the local scene, but I saw enough of Kabul and I saw enough of the outlying region around the city. Uh, the people, the people are really tired of the war. They're they're tired of uh, fretting. Uh, I saw lots of markets open. I saw lots of economic uh, activity. Um, more than you had seen previously. More than I had seen in previous uh, visit. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I'm. I'm slightly encouraged. Uh, I, I'm aware of issues, though, in their in their procurement and contracting system. There still is corruption. I mean, a, a colonel in the Afghan army makes about eighty dollars a month. You know, until until they're able to afford to pay, until they're able to, uh, until they can give a, a you know a meaningful salary to officers, there will continue to be graft and corruption. People will continue to to siphon money off of contracts. But, uh, but I, was, I was encouraged in, in this, this latest visit. To what extent has the Taliban gotten inside of, of Kabul? 
Well, they must have gotten in because uh, my my trip in December was postponed from a previous visit because of the the killing, the assassination of the of the American general. Uh, Major General Green was killed. He was he was to have been part of my visit, and uh, and unfortunately he was killed by a man who slipped inside the compound at the military academy and uh, donned a, 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 a military uniform and uh, took an, a target of opportunity and killed uh, the general and several other people. Uh, the Taliban are in, they are infiltrated. Um, I do know that for the for the most part there are a lot of lie detector. Uh, um, exercises going on. A lot of the people involved in the business I was I was over there to, to visit are in fact uh, put on the lie detector to determine their, you know, their fealty and, mm-hmm. and their support for the government side. So, what chance do you think that that the government that the Afghan military has at this point of really doing something about the Taliban? Well, I I think that the Afghan military is one of the few institutions that's actually respected in the country. There is a lot of respect for the Afghan military. They have come a long, long way in the last 13 years. Um, You know, I I, I was looking at General, uh, I was looking at the General's uh, welcome letter, you know, closing out the 13 years of NATO. This this is open source. This is available. Uh, John Campbell wrote this letter and said, Congratulations to the Afghan people and the Afghan military. Uh, the military is actually respected in the country. That hasn't always been the case. No, no, that's certainly not been the case. What's changed it? What's what's turned it around for the military? I think the most significant change that I have noticed is young officers, young captains, have grown up in the last seven years and got to be colonels. And we've got a lot of we've got a lot of junior grade people who have seen who have been influenced by our allies. It's not just the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. it's Poles and Danes and Macedonians and French and Brits, Germans. Uh, they have seen professional military forces come and, and assist them, and I think it's had an impact. I think those captains and majors have grown up to be the colonels uh, who are leading the military now. So I guess the, the, the question is whether or not they can take hold, whether or not it, it will stick at this point, particularly once the NATO forces are gone. There's a tipping point beyond right. which uh, – and, and this is true in our military also. Uh, you know, just like after Vietnam, we, we went through a terrible uh, period. That's when I came on active duty mm-hmm. in 1974 of regeneration of, of institutions and of capabilities and – the Afghan army is doing that. When you look to your left and right and you look at fellow officers and you look at fellow soldiers who are doing the right thing, um, then that impacts you. And I think that influences your desire to, to be a better officer, to be a better representative of your, of your government. Is there respect on the part of the military for the current government in Afghanistan? Because that certainly didn't seem to be the case during the Karzai government. No, no, I, I don't. Uh, I agree with you there. Uh, I was I was very pleasantly surprised by the by the officers that I dealt with from the Afghan army. They were very outspoken. Um, they they shared some experiences that they'd had in the previous regime that they hoped didn't happen now. Uh, you know, contracts being given to President Karzai's brother-in-law, for example, I saw in 2013. That's not occurring now. Uh, they they were very they were very outspoken in their support for and their desire to have things run on a better on a better track. Yeah, and the extent to which the population is war weary and tired and really wants to get on with with some economic development, as you were talking about before, 
Is that having an impact? Are, are the military and the government, are they feeling that? Do they understand where the people are at this point? <clears throat> I think it's still too soon to tell. Mm -hmm. You know, the coalition government that was formed and really came about because our Secretary of State went over and said, hey, you guys need to get your act together. Uh, the two of you are going to rule. And it's not going to be one over the other. Um, I think it's too soon to, to say, but I see lots of construction. I see lots of activity, uh, you know, trucks moving around, vehicles moving around, laden with, uh, with goods. I see markets open. Mm -hmm. um, the, biggest, uh, the biggest difference between now and what I saw my last visit a year and a half ago was that there aren't so many roadblocks. Uh, there aren't so many checkpoints. There aren't so many. Um, there, there are more open markets. There are more people shopping. And, and uh, really a lot more women you see moving around with shopping bags. I mean, I, that was a distinct difference from the, from the last trip I made. Uh, everybody walks everywhere, um, but, but they're walking around and shopping. I see people uh, moving around shopping. Always a good – shopping is always a good Sh shop, of economic yeah, development. We, we need more of that here in Napa. Yeah, well, that too. So when do you go off to the Congo? Uh, the end of January. And what is that trip about? That trip is about uh, again professionalizing the Ministry of Defense and the um, and their their military. Uh, there's been a NATO mission there in in Central Africa for the last uh, twelve years. You know they they suffered a, a significant civil war, uh -huh. two thousand three two thousand four. The eastern part of the country is still uh, in revolution uh, because of the. Because of the mining interests there in the eastern part of, of uh, Congo, um, the Lord's Revolutionary Army, you may remember Joseph Kony and, right. his, and his bit. Uh, there are five or six, though actually there are probably 15 armed groups that, that hide out in the eastern part of the country and run back and forth between the border between Rwanda and Uganda. My job is to help professionalize the support activities for their military. Uh, it's a huge country. No roads connect the east and the west. Everything is transported by aircraft. We're trying to figure out a system for them to support themselves militarily. The NATO mission has morphed. Uh, they now have uh, responsibility for being, for being able to, in fact, pursue uh, the armed groups across the border. Uh, they've received permission to do that from the African Union. So um, they're actually taking the fight to the revolution, uh, to the revolutionary groups. Uh, not only the NATO uh, battalions, but also the, the Congolese. So we're trying to help the Congolese professionalize uh, their services. Have you been there before? I have. Canada? I have. I've taught, I've taught there. Uh, the, the, the language is French. I don't speak French, so I uh, carry an interpreter with me. Uh, a couple of my, my colleagues who travel with me are fluent French speakers, uh -huh. and so they translate for me. I'm a subject matter expert, but I'm not, not a French speaker, so... Uh -huh. And, and to what extent is it being influenced at all by a lot of other economic – positive economic development that's taking place in other parts of Africa? Is that seeping into the country? Is that having an impact I, at all? I don't, I don't see it seeping in yet. Um, you know, if, if you do a literature search for economic advancement in Central Africa, there's no articles to, to pursue. If you look at positive professional – uh, aspects of military, you don't see any, not, not a lot of literature right. being written. Um, there's a lot of hope expressed for what's going on in Africa. But you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, the squeaky wheel gets all the grease. 
And right now the focus is in the Sahel. Right. It's in Mali. It's north of, of the Congo. It's closer to the Sahara Desert, uh, more where uh, Boko Haram mm-hmm. is operating. I mean, remember the story about the, the young girls who were, who oh, were sure. kidnapped? Oh, sure, of course. Uh, when have you heard about that being resolved anytime lately? Not. Not at all. You Just know, the, went away. The first lady was wearing was wearing a T-shirt and carrying a sign. Lots of attention. Uh, that's what. That's one of the the most depressing things to me is we see the fifteen minutes of fame for whatever the latest news story is, and then it all goes away. Is that the good news or the bad news? Because in many ways, sometimes that fifteen minutes of fame doesn't really solve anything. Maybe it calls attention to a problem. But it's sometimes easier to solve the problem or to work on the problem when the spotlight is gone. Uh, well, I, I probably know more than I'm supposed to, but yes, we certainly it, it certainly brought attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it brought attention to, to the issue, and now we have special forces units, U.S. special forces units over there. You know, I like to tell people, Christiane Amanpour is does great work. She shines the light where it needs to be, but she also sometimes brings attention that causes U.S. deaths. I mean, she's the one who brought the attention in, into Mogadishu in 1993, which caused, you know, the whole incident referred right. to as Black Hawk Down to happen. 19 Americans died in 36 hours. Uh, I, I like what she says and what she does. You know, you fill in the blank with anybody. Anderson, Cooper, the, sure, whole, it doesn't matter. the, whole, right. the whole media blitz. Uh, it draws attention to something. We pay attention to it, and then the light goes away. Certainly for the U.S. government, we, we continue to pay attention to things. And, of course, you know, mainstream journalism, uh, whether it's the New York Times or whatever, doesn't always have the resources to, to stay on these stories after, That's right. after the light is shined on it. That's right, yeah. A lot of stories, lot of stories are being told around the world, uh, good and bad. And uh, what I like is that the people I work with are able to focus on what's really important, what or what we perceive as important, and if we want the media, it's easy enough to attract their attention. Right, and when you want them to <laughs> go away, that's, that's generally right. okay too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Before you uh, go off to the Congo, any place else? Any other exotic locales that you're headed to? Well, um, I'll be in Belgrade, Serbia, in February. It's a little chilly there. The last time I was there, very chilly there. Well, the last time I was there in February, Jeff, it was the first time the Danube had frozen in 400 years. So there, I think global warming uh, may not may not be as as significant as we thought. But yeah, I'm headed there. I'll be headed to Lebanon. I'll be in Beirut, Lebanon later on in the year. And this is all connected with with the Naval Postgraduate School, right? the right. training and the yep. things you've been talking training about. Training and education uh, on behalf of inter- our international allies around the world. Mm-hmm. How safe did you feel in, in Kabul? <clears throat> um, I felt safe. I felt safe because I, I think I have a good intuition for situational awareness. I point out things when I see it. I mean, I've been, I spent a year in combat in El Salvador during the Civil War there. I think I've got, I think I've got good chops for, for good and bad. Uh, situations. Uh, I've certainly, uh, I'm certainly very uh, happy that I had good support while I was there. Uh, I was very happy with the uh, and satisfied with the with the security that I had. Um, I felt safe. Mm-hmm. And the security is is homegrown. It's not outsourced the way it was for a long time. No, uh, it, it's all it's all U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, a, as well as Afghan security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I thank you for coming in and uh, talking about all this. Thanks, Jeff. What can we do? One, one last question, because this sort of brings it back locally or anywhere else that, that there are young people. How can we do a better job of making young people, high school students, middle school kids, aware of the rest of the world and not being as myopic as they sometimes are? You, you ever know, think about that? I, I, like, I like to tell people that, that uh, our, local, our local college, the Napa Valley College, is a good example of where our community meets the rest of the world. And I've said that for years and years, uh, where, where our young people meet the outside world needs to be encouraged, you know. Uh, people coming and speaking to service clubs, uh, getting involved at the veterans' home, you know, there's a lot of, there are over a thousand veterans living at the home who have had experience around the world. Uh, if, you, if you spend any time up on, that, up on that campus, you'll see trees planted from around the world. Everywhere an American soldier, sailor, airman, marine have, have served, they've brought trees back. Uh, seeing that firsthand is a great way to understand more about the world. But uh, I, I'm encouraged. Uh, you know, I, I uh, represent Mike Thompson uh, helping high school students prep and, mm -hmm. and apply for the military academies. And I always tell candidates for the military academies, read. Read as much as you can. Read about the world. Go overseas. I mean, fortunately, my children were able to go over and uh, my son spent a year in England last year and my stepdaughter spent a year in Spain and they had a wonderful experience. They, they traveled all around mm -hmm. Europe. Uh, Katie actually went down to Morocco, spent time in, uh, around the Mediterranean. Uh, traveling is great, but, but just reading a lot. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Jeff. Bill Chadwick, appreciate it. You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com.